Welcome, one and all, to the Governance Update from VLGA Connect with Steve Cooper. Hi, Steve. Hello, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. And how do we find you this week? Oh, always good this time of year, Chris, because football's finished and it's cricket season. Ah, well, I, I, that one was lost on me. So there you go. Thanks for the reminder. Uh, it is, I was thinking more fast track. It's fast track day for the VLGA, big day. And uh, thank you for taking some time away from that to talk to us. Not a problem, Chris, but always a great day, fast track. And just wait for the, uh, the post-match reports on that. Now, uh, a few stories to touch on this week of interest from around the local government sector, not just in Victoria, but more broadly as well. I know you've... Um, uh, spent some time thinking about the implications of the latest episode of Australian Stories, Steve. Tell me about that. <laughs> some might think it's a tenuous link, Chris. Actually, Australian Story this week was a cracker, and if anyone didn't um, see it, get onto the ABC iView and have a look. It's the story of Christopher Hill and Lucas Camay, who were involved in a $7 million currency trading fraud. Right. We're still going, where's the link to local government? I'm looking, I'm looking, but I'm, I'm, I have faith that it shall all appear. Well, Chris, here's the thing. Um, they were, you know, old uni friends, school friends, and Christopher Hill worked at the Australian Bureau of Statistics and was responsible for holding data about employment figures, national employment figures. Uh, Lucas Camay was a currency trader at the NAB. Mm -hmm. um, if you know in advance of the market information about employment figures, that is they are matters that would actually affect the value of the currency. Right. So a person with knowledge ahead of the market can trade and make a profit. Um, now there's a whole bit of, bit of um, skullduggery that went on between the two of them in terms of the quantum. But um, as I said, there were $7 million worth of trades based on um, Christopher providing the information um, less than a minute ahead of the public announcement. We're wow. talking about that kind of margin. Now, where's the link to local government? Yeah. I think there's two, Chris. One is that um, we are in, in local government, we are managers of information. So we do hold information around properties, around planning, that if released to the market, um, people could make a profit out of. Yes. Um, so there's an implication there. And I know IBAC in the past have been concerned about the fact that um, you know, even Matt, information around council valuations in the wrong hands could be used for criminal purposes. So it goes to how we run our, how we, you know, manage data and information goes to, uh, you know, how we run our organisations. I think the other one, Chris, is if I take you to a thing called the fraud triangle, with which you'll be familiar when you do your fraud training. Um, any fraud typically has three elements, motive, opportunity and rationalisation. And in a sense, the rationalisation between, particularly with Christopher Hill and his role at the ABS, was that it was a victimless crime. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. Really well, exactly. And that was the view of the federal police, that in fact, if someone's made a profit on a trade, someone else has made a loss, even if that loss is distributed between a number of financial institutions and ultimately to their shareholders. And it would be the same thing, you know, um, some of the sort of white collar type frauds that you might see in local government from time to time, people might think are victimless, but the reality is that they're not. And so, you know, it just struck me as a reminder of the importance of thinking about the rationalisations that people use, often about what might not seem particularly important or might seem, 
uh, trivial, I suppose, Chris. So I think you've made that link very nicely, Steve. And the other thing you've done is uh, is made me think I need to make sure I watch Australian Story uh, from this week. <laughs> I'll catch up on that. Talking about people doing things and how they perhaps might rationalise it in their own minds, but it appears, you know, when you test it more broadly, how could, what could they possibly be thinking? Um, the Shire of Ravensthorpe in Western Australia, the CEO there has lost his job. Um, so he's not the CEO anymore, over an investigation that's being conducted by Western Australia's Crime and Corruption Commission. I'm not sure if I've got the words in the right order there. They say um, so, yeah. Yeah, but eff effectively he's lost his job because he's used council funds, allegedly, because this has not been tested criminally yet, but allegedly used council funds to pay for sex workers. Um, it's hard to understand on what measure anyone could think that's an appropriate use of ratepayers' funds. Um I think the justification was along the lines of mentoring and support, Chris, but that was, the, it's the sort of story that gets uh, media because of the salacious nature of it. So we sort of think, oh, that topic's, you know, worthy of attention. But, um, oh, look, I, and I wonder, I don't know, um, it might be that someone's just not well. I guess the thing that struck me with that, Chris, is how sometimes people, and not necessarily CEOs, but someone who has a powerful personality or occupies a powerful position, or in a recent case that was investigated by the Ombudsman at Melton, occupies a role that's quite specialised and not subject to scrutiny, can avoid the sort of checks and balances um, that would normally be applied through an organisation. I guess with a CEO, the thing that struck me too, Chris, is that... Um, and I know you and I talked about this before. There's been a bunch of, if you watch air crash on, t on a TV theme at the moment, yeah. watch air crash investigations often enough and you'll see circumstances where the navigator and the first officer don't question the judgment of the pilot. Yeah. I know that um, it's not uncommon for nursing staff to be given training of how to speak up when they think the surgeon's not quite doing the right thing. Mm. So... Um, if you've got a situation where a CEO is raising um, uh, an authorisation for a new creditor, um, providing invoices for payment, it becomes very difficult for you know staff in those organisations to question that. Uh, again, you've drawn a very nice link there, and I just want to be clear about what's happened with that case. So the the triple C launched the investigation. The council was obviously uh, privy to what was coming out of that investigation. They terminated the employment of the CEO. The Triple C has now publicly released its report. So this is in the public domain and has, uh, has said that it's uh, recommending that the matter be referred for criminal mm. charges. So... Uh, more at this, um, more to come from this. The other thing that's worth noting is that the Shire president, who by all accounts from the media reports is is devastated. It's a small Shire. Uh, we're talking about fifty or sixty thousand um, dollars. It's a lot of money to them. Um, apparently, the 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 ex CEO has told the Shire president that he'll repay the money, but I can't see that happening quickly. I saw that, Chris. Yeah, that was that was an interesting one. I thought it was interesting too um, in the media reports that the termination was based on confidential advice provided by the CCC to the council. And I guess the other thing that struck me, Chris, was um, 
how do I how do I put this? It goes back to a conversation that you had on VLJ Connect uh, with David Wolf a week or two back, and again I'd commend that interview for anyone. And David made the point that sometimes the controls that leadership think are in the organisation aren't as effective as they might be, and um, talk to the importance of a speak up culture. And you and I have spoken previously. Well, how do you know that you've got a speak up culture in an organisation? Um, how do your staff feel? You know, what are the stories that go around um, when the staff are perhaps presenting to a, a meeting of the um, executive team on a Wednesday morning um, as to how candid they feel they can be? Uh, what are the stories that go around amongst the staff in terms of preparing council reports as to the capacity of staff to, you know, give the council the whole story and for the council to receive that information, what are the consequences, you know, of uh, scrutiny and oversight done well compared with scrutiny and oversight done in a way that's actually damaging for um, the speak up culture in the organisation? Absolutely right. And I'm reminded also of a story that I saw recently and I did share on my LinkedIn profile if anyone's interested. Uh, it was called uh, Hypocritical Leaders Make Poor Leaders. And the, one of the quotes that jumped out at me is when the same rules apply from top to bottom, people are more prepared to do what their CEO asks of them. Uh, and the, the flip side of that is, you know, when the CEO or people in leadership positions aren't living the values they expect everyone else to abide by, how can you expect them to also abide by those values? Yeah, and then that takes us back to rationalisations, Chris, that, oh, I did it because the issue was important. Oh, I behaved that. I might have snapped, but, you know, we were under time pressure. Um, so, you know, managing culture is a topic that really deserves um, thoughtful attention. All right, we went down a bit of a rabbit hole there. Let's let's climb back out and uh, come into the into the sunshine uh, and and look at defamation. Oh, <laughs> so we've got uh, we've. It seems to me another week, another story about how someone has gotten into a bit of hot water uh, through their social media activity. Um, and without um, making any judgments on any of these particular instances, we've got a case in Mildura where a former mayor. Um, was subject of a defamation case by an MP, uh, and that matter's been settled out of court this week. That's true, Chris. The MP um, is also a former councillor. Um, my understanding of that situation, it related to a Facebook post which described, how would I just put this nicely? It described the, the, the Mac mechanics and the interactions leading to the election of mayor where perhaps... Um, a number of parties were involved and some councillors thought that um, uh, promises hadn't been kept in relation to what might have happened in relation to the mayoralty. Right. Um, there was a post made to Facebook and we know what happens to posts made to Facebook, Chris, they can be screenshotted very quickly. Yes. <laughs> so it's not on Facebook, but it had done the rounds and um, as a consequence of that post, a defamation action was launched. But fortunately, in this particular case, um, all parties to the, def def uh, to the action uh, are satisfied with the manner of the settlement, uh, which, of course, is confidential. Confidential, dealt with out of court. Uh, the post itself, I, I'm not, I, I think you might have seen it. It got taken down a few days after it was up there. But there was a bit to it, I think. It was like a 5,000-word Game of Thrones sort of dissertation, wasn't it? It, it was an essay, Chris, and I, yeah, I might have seen it. 
But anyway, it's uh, it's no, no longer there. It's, um, it's no longer it's no longer there. I thought the, one of the really interesting things for that, Chris, and again, we're back to rationalisations. Is oh, look, I was angry, I was upset, someone misbehaved. Um, might have been the sort of thing that people might be thinking when they make a post that's not complimentary of others. Again, we're not lawyers. Our good friends at Hunt and Hunt are probably much better qualified than us to um, to talk about these things. But it's not only truth. There's also an element of public interest and elements of reputation that go to um, the determination of defamation um, matters. And even at times where we think what we're saying might be the truth, it's only our view. And there may well be another broader view that we've missed because, you know, we only see one side of things. So um, a word of caution, I think you are, you're on this recurring theme around social media, Chris. Well, I am. There's another one uh, worth, and we talked last week about the, the, the Tasmanian case that's uh, underway. There's a, another issue in New South Wales at Bathurst Council where a council law was subject to, I think, two complaints in relation to Facebook activity. Um, and one of those complaints was brought by a local resident. Um, it's been investigated under the council's code of conduct and uh, tested against its social media policy for councillors. That council has been found to be in breach and has been officially censured by the council this week. And the, the other matter is ongoing. But just another example um, of um, what seems to be an increasing number of people just saying what they think on Facebook and then not perhaps thinking about the repercussions of that. Yeah, and it's interesting, Chris, because most councils will have a social media policy and I'm sure those policies talk about, you know, not using social media to disparage people or, you know, all of those sorts of, of things. But it's so easy to be kind of caught up in the moment and... Um, and regretfully or otherwise, uh, the oath of office, the standards of conduct, um, they still apply, um, notwithstanding that from time to time the issues are difficult or people can be um, can be a bit pushy and, and um, behave in ways that we mightn't agree. When you're holding public office, either as a councillor or officer, um, high standards are required. So uh, I, I dare say these aren't the last examples of these types of issues that we'll be talking about. Um, I know our friends at Hunt and Hunt Lawyers have recently produced some information on the use of social media, particularly around election time, but by uh, you know candidates, uh, elected representatives, etc. It is a bit of a minefield and people just need to be really careful. Couldn't agree more. Steve, uh, while we're in New South Wales, a couple of things that have happened this week that are worthy of note. The, uh, the long-awaited Central Coast Council public inquiry started on Monday and stopped on Tuesday. Uh, and unfortunately, it's due to technical issues uh, about which the Minister for Local Government in New South Wales is very displeased. The Minister's grumpy, apparently, Chris. Yes. Well, uh, the Minister, Shelley Hancock, put out a statement to say that the failure of the live stream is simply unacceptable and she expects the Commissioner to rectify it as soon as possible. So, so what happened was they were live streaming it on YouTube. Uh, apparently there was a technological upgrade on the weekend before the inquiry started on Monday. Never good timing, I would have thought. Uh, mm. And then lots of glitches Monday, Tuesday. The Commissioner proceeded with some of the witness statements and there are transcripts of those online. But uh, the point is that they need to be publicly uh, accessible in real time to instill that confidence in the process that wasn't happening. So 
it's stopped for the moment. It's not, yeah, it's not quite the same having the transcripts. And just to go back a step, Chris, this is the inquiry into the financial management that led to the dismissal of the Central Coast Council. I would have presumed it's an inquiry that will get interest from um, local government practitioners right across the country as to what could happen that could lead a council to that situation where it effectively can't pay its debts or its bills as they come through. Absolutely um, right. And, and I know you've been looking for something to fill the void with the loss of the live streams of Operation Sandon. So this could be it when it's up and running for you, Steve. <laughs> Absolutely, Chris. And I would say, I mean, I'm far more of a Luddite than you are on matters of technology, but um, I always have a bit of a bit of sympathy for the IT people because there's a bit of there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, and, and the other thing worth noting is they've quantified the cost of the deferred elections in New South Wales, which, as we've talked about on the program before, were pushed back another three months until December. Apparently, the Electoral Commission has asked the government for an additional $29 million because of that deferral. That's on top of the $57 million already allocated. It's a bit mind-boggling, really, to think that a three-month deferral, and let's not forget it's in, in, in COVID times, uh, is going to cost... Uh, nearly $30 million. Um, and my understanding, Chris, is that the Escalate, and I think you draw it to my attention that the government is now in a spot in New South Wales where they have to have attendance voting. The escalation yes, of COVID... Yes, as some people have, have said, why don't they just go post? But it's it's too late, and to set that up now would cost even more, I would, uh, I would venture. Yeah, and the escalation of COVID means that um, more staff are required to conduct the election. There are presumably sunk costs associated with um, the various arrangements that were previously in place. I think it's just a general comment about project management, Chris, that the longer a project lasts, the more it will cost. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I, I think they had their chance to, to make it go uh, a, a postal vote, but the government decided not to. And I think I read the Electoral Commissioner saying uh, it is, it's just too late to pivot to that now. So extra staff, extra venues, lots of additional measures, obviously, to, to conduct it in a COVID-safe manner. I think the worst thing that could happen now, Steve, is for it to be deferred again. Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> well, all those mayors and deputy mayors have been installed for on the understanding it's for three months, Chris. They, they have indeed, and that's, and that's still happening every week. We've got two or three more of those uh, coming, coming through. All right, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, that's all I had on my list this week, Steve. Have you got anything left to raise with our audience? No, only a welcome back to the minister who's been recuperating after some treatment. So, um, yeah, good to, good to see the minister back on deck. It certainly is. We're, we're all very pleased. Uh, and it was great to have him at uh, Fast Track today doing that opening uh, Q&A. Steve, thank you. That wraps it up for a governance update. With our thanks to Hunt and Hunt Lawyers, the terrific team there. If you want to know more about the Hunt and Hunt team and what they can do for councils and local government, visit them online at hunthunt.com.au. And Steve, we'll see you next week for another governance update. Likewise. Cheers, Chris. Mm -hmm.